You're listening to Trek FM. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Shame. We barely got to know each other. I know where you keep your gun. Suppose that's something. True. How did he die? Your contact? Not well. Made you feel it, did he? Well, we needn't worry. The second is... Yes. Considerably. Welcome everyone to Trek FM's local watering hole where our friends get together from the network. We talk all things geeky. We have uh, other people drop by and uh, I hope you have something special with you because it's going to be a lot of fun this episode. Um, before we dive into the episode real quick, I just kind of want to remind you that Trek FM and, and the 602 Club, we're part of a whole network. You can find all of the shows that we do at trek.fm online. Uh, there are 20 different shows here on the network. So if you haven't checked them out, go to trek.fm and, and do that. I, I really encourage you to get shows on all of the different um series for Star Trek, as well as way beyond from books to comics to um, anything else your heart desires, basically, when it comes to Star Trek, as well as, of course, the 602 Club and everything we talk here. And you can find us at Trek FM on Twitter, and you can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM. Just a couple of the ways you can find us. Well, this is going to be so much fun, I think, tonight. I have some amazing guests, and I, I want to go ahead and introduce them to you guys um, I'm so glad to have them back on as we start our James Bond Craig retrospective. Uh, and we're getting ready for Spectre. We've just had a brand new trailer come out, which uh, just gives me the chills every time I think about it. Uh, John Champion, it is so good to have you back to talk some Bond. Man, here I'm, I'm so excited. Yeah, I'm glad to be here for it. <laughs> Love to talk Bond. Uh, yeah, I I hear you. Um, and Norm, it's been a long time since you've been in the 602, but uh, Ruby was glad to hear you'd be back. You know, um, I'm so glad to be back, first of all. Uh, it's it's always fun to be here in the 602. Matthew, you've done such a great job with the show, and, and you have so many great guests on, and you have such a variety of topics to talk about. The only thing that I think... I think Ruby's a little miffed at me. She took my drink away. I had this really nice brandy, and <laughs> she wasn't angry. She said that, I go, well, what's wrong with the brandy? And she said, well, she looked at it and she goes, well, it's a, it's a 30-year-old fiend and indifferently blended. And then she sniffed it. And then she said, with an overdose of bon bois. And I said, <laughs> fair enough. And it's like, but we're not here to discuss my brandy. So. Yeah, no. I, and Ruby knows her brandy. You don't want to get into that no. discussion. You could be there for hours. Right. But, um, <laughs> well, one of the things that I, I mean, I remember for me as a, as a teenager, it was GoldenEye that really kind of caught my attention. Big, bold, amazing, 
bond, you know, just right back in there. And for a lot of people, you know, by the time we got to this period, we had had Die Another Day. Die Another Day had actually done Killer at the box office. Um, it had been, uh, if I don't, if I do recall correctly, it was like the highest grossing Bond film at, by that point. But they had gone, as they said in the extras, so fantastical. Um, they just, they really felt like in, in some ways they needed to find a way to ground Bond. And they weren't even sure what they were going to do with Bond. Um, they weren't sure if they were going to have Pierce back. Uh, and they actually started working on a Jinx story, an origin story for her. And they found that that story was much smaller, intimate, and personal. And as they were working on it, they just decided, look, we're, we're not going to do that. But we're going to take that template and place it on Bond, that idea of stripping it all down. And we're finally going to do Casino Royale. Um, if you don't know, Casino Royale was in a rights issue ever since the very first Bond movies came out. I mean, the story is as epic as Bond himself. Uh, I encourage you, if you have the um, Blu-ray or the DVD for Casino Royale, they walk through the whole thing, and it's just incredible how the, the different players come into being and how much time it took for them to finally get the, the rights to this. Um, and what were your guys' general impressions when you just kind of first heard about the story idea? Okay, we're going to take Bond, and we're going to break him down basically to the bare essentials. You know what's funny about that? I feel like every few Bond movies that happens because I remember um, and Norman I think you and I both had our same first theatrical Bond experience which was Spy Who Loved Me correct me if I'm wrong Mm -hmm. Um, so I saw that and it was big and it was amazing and it was fun and then you had Moonraker and it was (laughs) crazy (laughs) Um, but then shortly after you realized and the Bond producers realized they had to scale it back so that's when you started getting movies like For Your Eyes Only All right, we're going to make it a little simpler a little more straightforward less fantastical Um, and then by the time Roger Moore was done and you brought in Timothy Dalton we do the same thing have a little bit of a reboot strip things down make this Bond a little more raw a little more real License to Kill was very much that way. Yeah. 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 And then you get Pierce Brosnan. And I think Pierce Brosnan, everybody liked because they knew from TV. He's just oozing charisma and he's a great looking guy. And everybody's pulling for him to be Bond, right? But then his movies started one way and kept getting more fantastical, more fantastical, more science fiction y. And you had to scale him back. But instead of just scaling back Pierce Brosnan, you bring in a new actor. I feel like Pierce probably had another movie or two in him, um, but it was the right time to make a change. And it's funny to me that, you know, Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson trade off producing duties every other movie they do. And uh, Michael G. Wilson is usually the one who comes in and says, the next one is going to be even bigger and have more explosions and double the budget. And I say, "Eh, no, please don't do that. Bond doesn't necessarily have to have that. Um, But their instincts have been right, I think, when they scale it back. Every, Every few movies, it's just it's the pendulum always swings a little bit the other way. 
You know, the interesting thing that I'm seeing or when when Casino Royale was or when I saw Casino Royale first introduced into the public eye was there's this overall impression that Bond eventually becomes a facsimile of himself throughout the course of that Bond's run. And I think we probably saw that most in Pierce's because Pierce's Bond probably benefited and suffered the most from leaps of technology that can be used in the spy genre. So that you're right, John, movies became larger and more complex and had to push the boundaries of realism. I mean, let's take a look at Tomorrow Never Dies. Mm -hmm. The reason why Tomorrow Never Dies didn't really work for me is because the villain wanted to become the most powerful media mogul in the world, but he owned the most powerful newspaper already. (laughs) So where are we going with this? Aside from giving Pierce... Wait, you forgot he had a stealth boat, though. (laughs) Oh, and that's right. Oh, I forgot the stealth boat. That tips the scales, you know, so... So we are seeing from, from Pierce's movies, GoldenEye was fantastic. Also launched probably one of the best first-person shooter video games ever for the N- N64. <laughs> oh, yes. And, and then you have you know, his progression of movies where the gadgets become bigger, the, the scenarios become a little bit more outlandish, and then finally, he just became really good-looking, very comfortable in the role, and he was just sliding out one-liners like, you know, I was wrong. I do believe that Christmas came twice this year. Oh. You know, I'm like, there was this, and you could yeah. feel it in the theater. You could feel those notes just feel flat. Whereas in Connery's time, those were, those were the moments you savored, you were waiting for. Yeah. So they had to dial that back. They had to basically go, okay, we need to rewrite this formula for a smarter, more sophisticated, and yes, a post 9-11 audience who needs not necessarily a hero, but they need somebody who believes has the ability to do the job physically, mentally, and emotionally. And you were seeing that in Jason Bourne. Mm -hmm. The Bourne identity was taking off very well because it was a mixture of sophistication, realism, and emotional connectivity with that character. And the one thing about Bond is he became superhero status. He became that character that... Like in Austin Powers, you know, men wanted to be him and, and women wanted to be with him. But that's not the hero that I believe the audience needed post 9-11. So I was glad that they took a look at that formula and decided not to refresh it, but to completely strip it down to its bolts, its nuts and bolts, and say, you know what? Let's go back to the very beginning. Let's go back to the original writing and find what really worked and find a James Bond that you can emotionally connect with. And I think that they did that in Casino Royale. And I think that this this time period, you had gotten to the point where technology almost became a non-factor then, too. You know, it, as Pierce's Bond was ending, everybody had the same technology. And it has access to almost all of this technology in so many ways. So it was like you can't out-technology the technology. Right. Um, you know, if you just keep trying to do bigger and better technology that's, you know, better than anything I can get off the shelf or, John, I mean, you've got an Apple Watch on. So, I mean, like, that's the highest form of technology. Right. You know, it, it's just insane to try to keep trying to outdo this. And, and um, in some ways, going back to the book casino royale which at this point like i said they have i think was just genius because in so many ways the world that bond came from 
the Cold War, we were kind of back in that in some ways. We mm-hmm. we lived in a fearful world. We lived in a uh, a world where we're not sure what's going to happen, and we're not sure who we can trust. Um, and and so I think the reason this movie uh, struck a chord with people is is that we almost got we're almost back some way in the world that bond is we're just fighting different villains but it's the same kind of evil we felt like we faced then it it speaks to the strength of the bond character that he can be reinvented and rebooted over and over and over again so we're 10 minutes into the podcast and we've already mentioned Austin Powers <laughs> and we you know <laughs> but to me that's important because it says that James Bond isn't just a series of books by Ian Fleming and James Bond isn't just uh six movies with Sean Connery and it's not just seven movies with Roger Moore and it's not just you know, wh- whatever specific label you want to put onto James Bond James Bond is a very big concept, and when you say James Bond to somebody, if you take 100 people, they're going to have 100 different versions of what that means. And to some of those people, they get it because they get it through Austin Powers. Oh, like It's all this fun spy stuff, and some of it may feel a little out of date, <laughs> and some of it may be very relevant now. Um, but it shows that you can take a character, not not just a format of British Agent Saves the World, but a character and keep forming him and drilling down to figure out what makes him tick and what makes a character like that even remotely believable in the real world. That's what they've done so brilliantly with Daniel Craig. And I kind of wish that we were doing Casino Royale and Skyfall together because Mm. I feel like those movies are truly the same story. Casino Royale is sort of like giving Bond a root canal. (laughs) You know, we just drill down to the absolute root of who this character is and how he operates. By the time you get to Skyfall, we've done that, and you start to build the character back up and justify who he is and what he does. Um, so they really uh, bookend each other very nicely. And I, I, we might have even said it here one time that I feel like at the end of Skyfall, the next mission could be Dr. No. Like mm-hmm. you have reset yeah. that yeah. character so well right. that you could just pick right back up into where those stories began more than 50 years ago. You know, I, I agree a lot with what you're saying there, John, and especially with the um, taking the the essence of Bond and putting it into a crucible, taking all of those 50 years and, and just trying to burn it back to its bare essentials. The one thing that I thought that was really interesting about Casino Royale and their approach was taking a look at stripping Bond from the hearsay of Bond, because Austin Powers is very much the hearsay, the facsimile of Bond and another copy of Bond on top of that and another copy of Bond on top of that, amalgamating all of the actors and even the, ex- the extensions thereof and turning it into this other product. That's what Bond eventually, I think, became because yeah. it's not about understanding. The, the reason why I, I, I opened up with the joke about Ruby is because <laughs> that type of Bond ended up becoming a commercial for tea, 
or Pepsi, I believe it was, <laughs> where there were these two masterminds. One was a Bond-type character and one was a Blofeld-type character. And the Bond character stuck his finger in a cup of tea, rubbed his fingers together. It's like, the tea is Darjeeling, but the watch is from a spring in Tibet. Ugh, yeah, yeah. You know, and that's eventually what Bond became in the public culture, in the public eye. Yeah. And we really needed to get away from that. Bond, at the very beginning, wasn't about the tuxedos and the cars and the gadgets and Q branch and understanding the difference between a claret and um, a Cabernet. Yeah. Although he does, but you don't have to beat the audience's head with it over and over and over again. That eventually will come with his training, but it's not what Bond is about. Bond at its very best are the quieter moments Yeah. where the choices that he makes aren't frontline choices. It's him stopping somebody from switching a briefcase with somebody who then will take that poison a water supply and end up taking out a third of Europe. Right. You, you can get away moment. with that every now and then. You can get away with Bond having that superhuman knowledge and that superhuman recall every now and then when you're mm. just making the point that Bond can think his way out of a situation instead of just fighting his way out of a situation. But you have to be mm. very careful with that. And it's a right. difference between him knowing what a wine is or knowing that his opponent ordered the wrong wine <laughs> with dinner <laughs> right. so that tips him off to something. There's a difference between that and then just saying like, okay, well, that worked once, so we'll do it five more times and we'll just mm -hmm. kind of have Bond come across as a smug jerk. Mm -hmm. um, right. So, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a real tightrope that they have to walk. Um, and we mentioned the most groan-worthy line ever, Christmas coming <laughs> twice a year. And I hear a thing like that, and I think, okay, somebody wrote that. Right. Somebody read it. The actor had to act it. The director had to approve it, say, yeah, okay, that works for the scene. And then the editor had to say, yeah, that's going to stay in the movie. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> what? Why? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yep. Well, and and I think it was interesting, you know, because that's one of the things that Bond kind of did as he grew is he kind of became there was so much Sherlock Holmesiness to him as well, mm -hmm. like that superhuman knowledge of his uh, he had an idea about everything, whether it was from butterflies or to, you know, what kind of wine you should drink or and you know, he started to be able to have that kind of superpower and and that's you know, that's one of the most interesting things I think about the character is that if you are reading Fleming, Bond is very particular about what he drinks, what he dresses in, what he smokes, all of those things. Mm -hmm. And yet um, it doesn't overshadow the character. It just kind of informs you on the page. And especially I, I loved about the fact that, you know, with Casino Royale, it is Bond's first mission. Hmm. And uh, it's it's grounding him, and, and they do such a great job with that in Casino Royale. And honestly, I never thought I would say, be thankful for Die Another Day. <laughs> but because that happened, because mm -hmm. what they were working on with the Jinx story and kind of learning that, okay, we can, we can take this all down a notch, you know, and it still be good um, – you know, it's interesting to see how the creative process works. And, um, you know, watching the extras, Barbara Broccoli is very diplomatic when she talks about Die Another Day, but she's having trouble coming up with words that aren't, like, ridiculous or outlandish or anything like that. She says, uh, 
fantasy. <laughs> like it'd gone in too much of the realm of fantasy, and that's a very kind way of saying it just got outrageous. Um, and uh, I think real Bond fans just kind of shook their head, you know, at, at that film. And so when you got to this, it did. It felt like from with Russia with Love. Um, it felt like Dr. No, those original Bond movies, before they got the quote-unquote formula of Goldfinger where we just have to keep going bigger and better yeah. every time. You have to have a certain f- amount of believability, clearly, within this fantasy situation, but it just shows that it always goes back to character. You and I, looking at both of you, <laughs> uh, the three of us <laughs> have a passing familiarity with Star Trek, okay? And Star Trek is many things, and it has taken many forms, but ultimately when Star Trek is very good, it's about characters. It's about mm-hmm. characters being better than themselves, making good decisions, helping each other, understanding something, learning something, etc. So if we're not keyed into those characters, it doesn't matter how big the explosions are, it doesn't matter how cool the spaceships are, we're not going to buy it. And James Bond constantly runs that risk of stepping, the character just stepping out of the realm of believability. So you have to reel him back in every now and then. And Daniel Craig is the kind of actor who can play something extraordinary and make it feel very real and very personal. Well, I was talking about this with Carol the other night when we were watching um, we we're watching it for this review because he's a big Daniel Craig fan, especially because of the Bond movies, but also because of his performances in Munich and his performance in Layer Cake, um, both which preceded Casino Royale. And he has the physicality to do that. When somebody is running up a crane in ascent... <laughs> You have to believe that this person has the physicality to do it. I'm not saying that Sean didn't, because Sean was an amateur, you know, world-class bodybuilder. Roger, not so much. Yeah, yeah. I believe that Timothy Dalton could do it because he just has that sheer look of will on his face. And and Pierce is well, he's a little bit of a slighter figure, but he was pretty, he was pretty athletic and and well built. But Daniel Craig had it. He had it. Just he just had that presence. He had the fact that he wasn't quite yet refined. Mm-hmm. And I know we're going to get into this later, Matthew, so I'm not going to jump the gun, but I agree with both of you. You're not going to jump the gun. <laughs> Norm, <laughs> you slay us. But um, it's, it's just that you have to believe in the character. You have to believe that what this character is emoting to you connects with you because the one thing that Bond lost prior to rethinking this series is he lost the ability to connect with the audience. Mm-hmm. What he was doing did not matter. Everything around him mattered more. The satellite effect in Die Another Day, the effect of the diamond makeup, you know, on the uh, henchmen, that mattered more. The fight scenes mattered more. Jinx being able to take on, um, you know, that, I can't remember her name, the actress, uh, but the swordswoman with... Rosamund Pike. Rosamund Rosamund Pike, yeah, that whole whole sword fighting scene. The best thing about that movie was the sword fighting scene in the... (laughs) You know, in the in the, yeah, um, the Masters Bond. Hall. That was, yeah. was amazing. Yeah. I was like, that was that was great. But I didn't care about Bond. I cared about the quality of the choreography. Yeah. As a Bond fan, that's where I felt there was trouble uh, in MI6. So I'm glad that they, they did this. And, and not to belabor the point too much, I am glad that they found an actor who did not have the sheer physical specifications of James Bond on the original printed page. Because... 
he wasn't the cookie-cutter, perfect replication of what Ian Fleming believed James Bond should look like. And I think that is a very interesting thing. Well, he didn't look like Fleming. Right, this is true too. <laughs> Let's just be honest. James Bond looks like Fleming. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, th- th- this is a difficult thing because th- there are people who look at the Ian Fleming books as gospel, and and I get that. I, absolutely, that is the origin of Bond, and everything that comes after has to owe some credit, some debt to that. Um, but I think when we start to pigeonhole and decide, okay, well, this is Bond, this is not Bond, this actor is Bond, this actor is not Bond. Again, I go back to this original idea that Bond is now so much bigger than that, that there's a lot more room to play. If all we're focusing on is that Daniel Craig has lighter colored hair than the toupee that Sean Connery wore, then we're missing something great. We're missing That's something right, great people. about That's right, people. It was character. a toupee. Yes. <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I think people's hearts just collectively stopped. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's that's what's so smart about this this part of the series of the Bond films is that there have been very few movies in the series where the movie felt like it was about the Bond character and not just about him reacting to everything that happens to him. But starting with Casino Royale, moving through even Quantum all the way to what we get in Skyfall this story is about him. And I think that's what's so interesting is that after 50 years, we're finally actually learning the most we've ever learned about the character of James Bond himself. I mean, and I say that except for, I think, in Her Majesty's Secret Service, where we there's a lot that we do that's very different with that character. I mean, he gets married and, uh, you know, and all of that. So it changes the character there. But this one, each film is specifically about a part of Bond you know this is his first mission um, the The next movie is going to be about him out for revenge the third movie is uh, about him uh, becoming much more of the more classic Bond character yet at the same time learning even more about his own personal history and where he's from and owning up to that and all of that it's just it's so interesting that again 50 years these three films that we're starting with tonight with Casino Royale actually are telling the story of the character that we've been talking about for so long in a way that makes him feel new and fresh. And I think that's pretty spectacular. And I think it's because they are referencing so much more of the original material with, uh, you know, going back to Fleming. And this movie, like On Her Majesty's Secret Service, is very much has a most of the beats of the book. Um, a lot of the beats in the book are still in this this movie. Uh, and I think it really shows that, you know, uh, like when you make a Lord of the Rings film, you stay closer to Tolkien because Tolkien knows what he's doing. <laughs> you know, when you're making a Bond movie, you go back to Fleming because he knows what he's doing. So... Um, I did want to talk about, we've referenced all in that grounding Bond section, (laughs) uh, the blonde Bond. And when Daniel Craig was announced, it was as if millions of geeks had suddenly cried out in horror (laughs) and then didn't be quiet until Craig was on screen in Casino Royale. And I think for the most part proved people wrong about this man. And so I just wanted to spend this opportunity talking about... Daniel Craig 
and what he does bring to this role, and it had nothing to do with the color of his hair. I, I really can't agree with you more. I mean, I go back to what I said before, that it, when they announced Daniel Craig, and I started getting emails, and I started seeing comments online, and people absolutely freaked out that he was a guy who has blonde hair. And I thought, okay. Yeah, he, he looks a little different from the way Fleming described him. He looks a little different than the way we have um, seen him portrayed on screen up until now. But I've got to reserve judgment until I see this actor in the role doing what he has been asked to do. And honestly, I didn't even notice as soon as the movie started. Casino Royale opens with that beautiful black and white, well, beautiful, brutal black and white sequence you know (laughs) masterfully shot incredible pacing tells you everything you need to know about that character in about three minutes really remarkable it's a great great piece of filmmaking that as its own little standalone uh piece um so yeah, I get it that people looked at that. They looked at Bond and, uh, or they looked at Daniel Craig and they thought, "Oh no, what what have they done with the character?" But I've always been a fan of non-traditional casting, and I mean honestly, how non-traditional is this? He's a, you know, thirty-something-year-old white British male actor. That's we're pretty much we're on the right path to get him to what Bond originally was described to be. So, uh, again, if, if a little bit of hair color is uh, what stops you from enjoying his performance, then I, I, I think you're sort of missing the forest for the trees. I remember when they first announced him and then they started leaking his picture online and, and, and establishing who he was, his filmography, his credits, and what, you know, what gave him the ability to bring this type of gravitas of, of Bond to the screen. And, of course, once you do that, you have to start ramping up the merchandise and promotional wing of of the 007 franchise and obviously the first thing that they had to do was get him into some type of promotional piece where he could flash the the new Seamaster Omega watch or <laughs> Omega as Daniel Craig says in the movie. Right. And in that particular promotional shot, I believe that they played around with some darker colored gel for his hair. So in that shot, you can see him clearly wearing the watch in the very type of pose where he's sighting down somebody with a classic Walther, not a Walther P99, the one that Pierce used in, in his tenure, but a classic PPK with a silencer or a suppressor. And I was like, well, okay, that's, that's okay. I guess that works because they're, they're willing to release that. It was darker than, than what we saw on film, but they were definitely making sure that they were addressing that in terms of looking at all different aspects of how we're going to bring Daniel Craig to the screen. But you're right, John, in those first three minutes in that sequence where we learn what type of bond this is going to be. Mm-hmm. And it was shot in black and white, which was really smart because it did hide the fact that his hair color was blonde <laughs> because it played darker in that scene. Yeah. And it was just like, you know what? That became bond. The fact that he was very curt very matter of fact, on the job, had to do his job, and retained, you know, he made his double status because of this particular mission. You became so invested with the character in those three minutes than you did in the last possible two movies in Pierce's campaign. Well, and that, I think that meant a lot to people. Yeah, I mean, that, that's just it. James Bond is a character, not a haircut. 
or a hair right. color. You know? <laughs> and so again, if the character is consistent and if the character is believable and if the character is entertaining, then we'll want to go along that ride. You know, the, the biggest problem with Die Another Day is that by the time you got to the second half of that film, the action became boring. And you're looking at your watch, waiting for the action to be over, mm-hmm. wondering, yeah. when are we going to get back to what matters? Because mm-hmm. if James Bond by this point is just a CGI figure going from place to place and, and fight to fight, I got nothing else to be related to here. But in this reinvention that we got, uh, the, this stripping down and getting back to basics, then I had a character again to wonder about and try to get into his head. I mean, I have to thank what they did with Casino Royale a lot because if it weren't for this movie, I think I would have walked into Star Trek 2009 completely differently because Captain Kirk is my hero. Captain Kirk, William Shatner's Captain Kirk, is the, is the character that I grew up with. And very much like James Bond, if this particular change didn't work, then I would have been really soured on all the different type of reboots that came after that because Casino Royale really did set a very high bar for this reboot mentality in the mid 2000s mm-hmm. and when i went into star trek in 2009 i basically said you know what casino royale worked they redid the franchise because they cast the right people they made you trust in the characters again and that in turn allowed you to appreciate where they were going with this new tangent in the franchise because when you think about all these different character changes they're really no different than if an author takes a hold of the title in the franchise and puts their own spin on it, or if a new art team takes care of another comic book franchise, or if you know another director takes care of another type of TV franchise. Doctor Who does it all the time. <laughs> I mean, there have been, what, 13 yeah. different? But they all, had their same, they all had their own validity to those characters because you care about the character, you care about the person, the vessel, and not necessarily the physicality of it. Once they sell you on the character, the physicality just becomes part of the information. And you ride along with that because you're no longer judging the outwardly appearance of this person. You're judging where this character has been that you've missed for so long. I think what we're saying is that we should never, ever be afraid of reboots, reimagining, recasting, whatever. It all comes down to context and performance. Some people are going to pull it off. Some people are not. Um, Mm -hmm. Star Trek 09 is a a great example of that. there are things about that movie or about Into Darkness that we can argue about story, plot, dialogue, whatever. But the casting really worked because those actors inhabited those characters. There are a lot of actors that the three of us can sit here and uh, throw out names for potential James Bonds. And I think those would all be valid. But again, it comes down to how they're treated and, and the the world that they get to inhabit in that character. Um so I, I look forward to things like that. We're going to be talking about The Man from U.N.C.L.E. in a few weeks. And I can't wait to talk about how these new actors inhabit those characters. Well, and one of the things that, as listening to you guys talk about Craig, I think what he brings to the role, and I keep referencing this, but I, I really see it. When you would... When you watch On Her Majesty's Secret Service, there's something that Lazenby does, and he gets a lot of crap from a lot of people about his performance. But there's something that he does, which is a vulnerability in playing Bond, especially when he's on the run and Tracy comes and actually is his, you know, knight in shining armor. 
uh, and saves him. But you can actually tell that the guy is scared. Yeah. You know, that he is worried. And I think that that's something that Craig, for all his machismo, for all of his brute force, there is a vulnerability in his eyes especially that very last scene where he's he's trying to revive Vesper mm. and he just sits back and and it it dawns on you just how vulnerable this guy is inside and that's why he wears the armor um and I think that's what Craig brings to this role is that he can tell you a lot without having to say a lot um and Bond isn't an overly loquacious character um, especially in the books. Uh, and so, again, he's he's really bringing to life, I think, in a lot of ways, and for maybe even the first time, the most literary of the Bonds, the one that, that really fits with what I think Fleming wrote. I think Fleming would have been really happy with Craig's Bond in the way that Craig plays Bond. Um, yeah, he, he doesn't look like Ian Fleming, which is who... Fleming modeled Bond after uh, you can call him a raging narcissist but um, you know it's I think that that's what's so amazing about watching Daniel Craig as he's playing this role and you everything else melts away and he becomes the character and I think the same way that Chris Pine became Kirk you, you didn't think about William Shatner anymore. You just felt like Kirk was there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's a really tough thing to do, especially when you think about that he has a lot of really good bonds to follow. Um, and we've seen some good ones. We've seen some ones that people don't like so much. Um, and uh, we've seen the ones that have set the bar and the ones who have <laughs> fallen under the bar for up people. But I, I think, um, honestly... Craig set a new bar almost with what it came to to play Bond um, not in a whole new way just in a way that felt more authentic more real to an actual character not just a stereotype you know I just wanted to jump in there about the Bonds because I think I'm going to throw this out there, and I think we would all agree on this. I don't think there's been a bad Bond actor. I think that some of the actors just had the unfortunate circumstance of bad stories associated with them, bad movies, because I don't think that any one of them turned in a bad performance. I just think that some of the stories were just lacking in in what we're talking about right now and talking about just what Bond means and how Bond translates to the period that they are conveying that story in. Yeah. And I know that that, um, Timothy Dalton probably gets the second most whipping you know uh, you know after after uh, George Lazenby yeah. but his performances in Living Daylights and License to Kill were actually very good he's fantastic when you really look at him in the in the movie yeah not necessarily the movie itself so because we Timothy Dalton is a fantastic actor and oh, you know he I, yeah I think that that's where I think that's where Craig is actually most closely akin to as a Bond yeah, I, I think uh, in a lot of ways, uh, if you had had license to kill, now, the, the the kind of dark, gritty undertones that that is, it fits much better. It just was twenty years too early for people, and they just didn't respond to it because they were too wrapped up in the uh, more nostalgia 
and uh, you know they weren't expecting Bond to be so dark. Uh, so I, I agree with you completely. I actually License to Kill is is one of the Bonds that I can pop in and enjoy a lot more than some other Bonds, just because it still feels pretty fresh in a lot of ways. I remember seeing interviews with Timothy Dalton at the time like around 1987 when uh, Living Daylights was about to come out. And here was this actor, who, of course, I knew from Flash Gordon, <laughs> saying, that's right, that was for you, Norman. Um, <laughs> Prince Baron. <laughs> yes, so awesome. <laughs> yep. um, but here he was saying, I went back to the books. I went back to Ian Fleming, and I tried to figure out who this character was, and I wanted to bring that weight and that seriousness to the character. Cool. Problem is, if the movie isn't really there to support it, and remember this was a, a long gap after the uh, Roger Moore movies, and we didn't really know, well, was Roger Moore going to come back for another one? Is it going to be Pierce Brosnan who will fill this role now? So it's not necessarily the movie then fitting the actor and, and, and fitting what that actor wants to bring to it. So here's this guy doing his best and maybe the production isn't necessarily great around it. And I will say this, it is, it is another parallel, I think to star Trek fandom that no matter who the actor is and no matter what the movie is, when we talk about James Bond, like star Trek, every one of those is somebody's favorite and somebody's least favorite. So I, I try to give them all kind of the benefit of the doubt at a certain point and say, okay, even if this is my least favorite, there's bound to be something that I like here because somebody else likes it too. Well, for you guys kind of coming into this movie, um, you know, thinking about, okay, they're going to bring it back. Where are we going to get a Bond's history? Uh, and the kind of the prequel expectations in, in many of the same ways that you get the prequel expectations with Star Wars, what people wanted there, what they thought they were going to see, uh, what were you kind of hoping that you would get to see in, in this movie? And then what were some of the things that you really enjoyed seeing? Oh, man, I love that that's referencing this. And, and you know, uh, what were those things that really uh, you wanted and then actually stood out to you as you watched the film and now you watch it over and over again at home because we all have the Blu-rays? I mean, for me... The opening scene, again, it informs you what the double O means. And I think that's very important because at this point in his career, in this point of James Bond's career, he was a field agent. In order for him to progress to the next level to be part of the double O system, he had to do something he may not have been comfortable doing prior to this assignment. So there was something, there was a switch that he was able to make when he had to take out the station chief in Prague. It was something that he wanted to do because you don't just take that assignment and not fulfill the two credentials of becoming a double O agent. Kill one, and considerably easier, kill two. <laughs> and not only that, informing who this new Bond is, it allows us to see a glimpse of the choices that you have to make if you want to become part of the program being part of M's program or MI6's program. And that's, that's something that changes your mentality of, oh, this is just somebody who works for the British Secret Service versus this elite unit of agents who are willing to go this next level. And then something that took me completely by surprise was the very first version 
or at least in their telling, the very first version of the barreled gun scene where James Bond sights down his very first assailant and it opens the movie. I thought that was brilliant. I, that caught me completely off guard. My literally, I know this sounds so cliche. My breath was taken away from me when I saw that. I'm like, oh my God, that's what that means. <laughs> and from there, everything else was fantastic. That movie and Skyfall, like I said, have been about justifying Bond. You didn't have to do that in 1962 with Dr. No. But I feel like we've gotten to know this character so much over 20-plus movies that it's about time you started to go back and justify not only who he is, but why his world is the way it is. So that's a perfect example of that, Norman. And I feel like, you know, when I was a kid and in the summer of 1983, Octopussy and Never Say Never Again came out. Ooh. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. (laughs) <laughs> Double bonding. Right? Mm. <laughs> Octopussy was a James Bond movie because mm-hmm. A, I had grown up with Roger Moore, and B, it had the music, and it opened with the Gun Barrel logo. And when I sat in a theater with my dad, and I saw Never Say Never Again, and it didn't open with the Gun Barrel logo or the James Bond theme, I sort of looked around thinking, when does the James Bond movie start? Because this ain't it, (laughs) you know? So you cannot overemphasize how important something like that is. The music, and and by the way, in uh, Casino Royale, I'm not a fan of the theme song. I'm not a fan of uh, Chris Cornell's performance of that theme song, but I actually love the orchestrations of that theme throughout the Mm. movie. I think it's beautiful. Mm. Oh, yes, definitely. Um, And that's another kind of hallmark of a Bond film that I love to see played out is reusing the themes throughout. Really works nicely. Um, Not a lot of gadgets, you know, and actually it's kind of amused at all the use of cell phones. Because in 2006, mm-hmm. it was like, well, of course, spies are going to use cell phones. And now I look at it and go, okay, my iPhone has better security. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, just to interject really quickly, mm-hmm. John, one of the things that Matt was saying earlier on in, the, in, the, in this podcast was we were getting to that point where technology was matching what, what they would pr- probably be using in the field. Yeah. And, and yeah. one of my favorite scenes in this was showing how smart Bond was using his cell phone to, to use the timestamp from the email that said ellipsis and tracing that all the way back to the security footage in Nassau yeah. and Paradise Island at the club resort. So I thought that good. was like, you know what? Brilliant. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. Letting technology being used in real time to inform you that they're using what we would be using with just a slight upgrade in terms of what a spy would be afforded. Right. Yeah. Great point. Um, the other things that we had to see come back. So, Bond invents the Vesper, the drink. Mm. Pretty cool. So he doesn't have to rattle off the pedigree. Hey, Ruby, can we get a yeah, round right. of those over here? <laughs> please. <laughs> Minus the poison. Yeah. He doesn't have to rattle off the, the pedigree of a drink. He doesn't have to come across like a smug jerk. He just has to come across a guy who um, likes to have a drink and has a good idea. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, of course, we all love the DB5. And we love him calling out... The beautiful 1964 oh. Aston Martin DB5, and then winning it. Because, again, we get to justify why does Bond have this awesome car? Well, let's put it in the real world. Let's put him winning it from somebody he has to defeat. Great idea. 
mm-hmm. there is a little bit for for as serious and almost humorless as Daniel Craig's Bond is, there are a couple of moments where the camera lingers just long enough to get a reaction out of him and make it just pop that tension a little bit. Matthew, you talked earlier about the scene with the uh, the tuxedo and the dress. He brings a dress to mm-hmm. Vesper. She says, yeah, but I got you a tux because there are dinner jackets and there are dinner jackets. So he goes to get that. But his reaction when he realized he's sort of been had is great. His reaction after he's been revived, after getting poisoned, you linger on that just a little bit after Vesper saves him. He's like, okay, time to go back into the game. <laughs> you know, Mo- but they're not groaner one-liners. They're not. They're the not at all. And that's what I love about it. Mm-hmm. You you show that the character has got a little bit of a sense of humor, um, just sort of aware of uh, the fact that there are, I don't know, other people around him and he could die, but he can't take everything incredibly seriously. So little moments like that to break the tension I really liked. And they are very subtle. He has the self-awareness. Mm-hmm. That I feel like maybe he really hasn't had before, you know, like he doesn't, not everything has to be quippy and, and, you know, um, pithy one-liners mm-hmm. and comebacks to everything, you know, um, and it makes it so much more realistic, you know, when he does come back and he's like, <gasps> yeah, there are so many times okay. yeah. when you can do so much more with what is not said than trying to force it with dialogue. This movie has a lot of dialogue. And it has a lot of detail you have to follow. But there are great moments in between the moments. Well, I think the shower scene between... And when I say shower scene, it's more of a... these uh, The shower scene between Vesper and James mm-hmm. when she collapses in the shower and she's just there completely vulnerable. And then he goes inside and comforts her. That There were no words spoken. And um, a, some brilliantly written music there. And it just shows that he's still not fully who he is going to be. He hasn't become himself, as, as M would say. So you still see that there's still some origin at play here. The, the original character, the essence of James Bond, isn't quite there yet. You're still seeing moments of vulnerability, moments of humanity, where he still believes that the people that he, he is trying to protect aren't really worth his time in the end because of what Vesper becomes. But he's still... He's still that person. He's still a good, noble person. In in role-playing terms, he would be lawful good. Mm-hmm. He would be a paladin because he's there to protect and he's there to defend. And eventually he becomes a little bit more lawful neutral. Is that is that the word? You know, he's just he... Mm-hmm. But I just find Daniel Craig's evolution from the guy who's running through drywall in the beginning of the movie to the James Bond at the very end just in the span of two hours and 32 minutes, just breathtakingly realized with the right amount of origin material detail dropped through along the way. Well, and what was so interesting is, and this was happening a lot, is that we were getting the beginnings of characters. And that, that's what I was excited about here is that we were going to, like you said, John, we're going to give you the reasons for why Bond is the way he is. Mm-hmm. We're going we're gonna to finally show you that and uh, that's for me what made you know batman begins so enjoyable or what i liked about man of steel is that we're we're not just giving you the character full-fledged you know um 
halfway through the movie or even maybe even really at the end of the movie we're we're giving you bond begins mm-hmm. and i i love that because you know even by skyfall we're only now beginning to see him become the bond that we're completely familiar with with all of the other films and it's been an amazing progression to actually watch the character grow that we've never really watched grow before on screen like this and so um, in the same way that I loved when Nolan did it with Batman or Snyder was is doing it with Superman, uh, I just I love that because I get to actually watch the character that I have so much feeling towards become that person and watch the 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 reasons he is and the why that he is and you know like you said John it's it it is character you know and for the first time this was a character driven bond movie and it was driven by the character of bond himself surprisingly enough you know so many years into bond we're finally doing a bond movie a that's about idea. the character yeah. <laughs> novel. <laughs> novel novel i say uh so that's what i think i was expecting and i i think when i came out of casino royale it completely lived up to my expectations in that way it was pretty much everything I kind of wanted to see from a prequel bond. And, uh, you know, like you said, you know, all the little hints with the, and the fun things with the DB five or him learning about tailored clothing from Vesper or him, um, learning to maybe not fall in love with the women that he meets, uh, to, um, the hints of, of specter and something malicious behind all this. I mean, all of those things, as a fan of the series for so many years, it did everything I wanted to, and and that just doesn't happen. I mean, I love the prequels, but ask Star Wars fans in general uh, for so much of the time what they thought of them and how difficult it was. Whereas this, I think, honestly became pretty much universally accepted as one of the best Bond movies ever made. If not, people would argue at that point the best. So... Um, I, I think that's a pretty incredible feat at this point of a Bond filmmaking. You know, this is number 20. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so that's pretty amazing. I, I was just going to really quickly interject to say, you know, I always think it's unfortunate when people poo-poo the idea of, oh, it's another origin story. Oh, it's another reboot. It's another this you know what? That doesn't matter. All that matters is that the, the story is good and engaging. The character is there, believable, real, fits with the world that they've created. And if you can tell me that story in a new and interesting way, cool. I, I don't care if it's an origin story. Bond needed it. Bond was crying out for it. I don't know if we needed two like Spider-Man origin stories so close to each other, but I know why we got those. Um <laughs> And, and you know, even with Batman, to an extent, they've retold that origin within the Batman stories a, a few times. Um, and Superman, we told the origin story a few times on screen now. Um, but if you're doing that for a reason, because you need to tell us something about the character, cool. Just make it new and exciting. And I, I won't prejudge it knowing that that's what you're about to do. So, John, you're saying make it good. Yes, I think that's a good rule for That formula is so complex. Yes, right. (laughs) I love it. 
there is a bonding that happens in this movie that doesn't happen in a lot of the Bond movies. And we referenced on Her Majesty's Secret Service the fact that Bond falls in love and gets married. Spoilers. Spoilers. <laughs> uh, the movie's pretty old, so I apologize <laughs> if you haven't seen it yet. Um, but uh, this is a pretty incredible movie in the sense that Bond really does have this true romance. Uh, a, an actual love story. And I just wanted to ask you guys what you thought of that and how it worked with Eva Green, the amazing Eva Green, in this role and uh, really setting the stage again for Bond and who he is going to become. Well, I think before we saw um, Vesper on screen, Bond did have a little bit of a flirtatious episode with with Demetrius's wife in the Bahamas. Mm. So there still is a little bit of this cad that's in him that Vesper's speculation on the train brought forth a little bit, how these types of agents have this personality of treating women like they are flirtations, that they aren't meaningful relationships. And that informed both characters at the same time of James Bond has the ability and this room to grow as a character through her. And Vesper Lynn's character, knowing that he has the potential of buying into her emotional connection that would service her needs in the end. But through that, we did see some great interplay between these two characters because, first and foremost, they did a great job in casting them two actors that had chemistry together. Daniel Craig and Ava Green had great chemistry together from the very first moment she says, I'm the money, and he said, worth every, every penny of it. <laughs> Which we all thought at that time alluded to Money Penny before she gave him the business card. Mm. So you already had that, 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 that nice initial spark between the two. And then from then on, not to belabor the rest of the movie, which if you haven't seen it yet, you really should. <laughs> and stop listening to the podcast right now and then come back later. But those two characters really were the crux of what I believe was the second act of a three-act play in this movie, the relationship between Bond and Vesper, and how he almost immediately trusted her with all of her challenges because it was something I think that he wasn't used to at any stage of his life, with the exception of M, because M was his boss and confidant and pointed him in the direction where he needed to point his mission. But Vesper was like, you know what, I'm not just going to sit here and let you be this cavalier secret agent. I have a job to do. I also have my own agenda. So you're going to play into it, and I'm going to, I don't know, maybe fall in love, because I do think that there was some feeling mutually between the two of them, but eventually she had to be back on point and fulfill her mission, and then we all know what happened from there. But chemistry was there, it was on point, and they both played it brilliantly, this torrid type of affair throughout the course of the second act. I feel like we should kind of do another show about the Bond girls, more accurately, mm. the Bond women. Mm. <laughs> you know? yes. Because they've all brought something, and sometimes it's a really thankless job, you know, uh, because... Every last one of them is has been a very capable actress who really wants to bring something new and interesting to the role. You know, when uh, Barbara Bach was playing Major uh, Amasova, Triple X, in uh, Spy Who Loved Me, 
that was a breakthrough thing. She's Russian, and she's Bond's equal, supposedly. She's a spy, too. They're opposite sides. Um, and then you come up again to Octopussy, and you've got Maude Adams as Octopussy. Tough, older. It was nice to see a woman who wasn't, you know, 25 being a lead woman in a Bond movie. Um, but this one is different. This one is different that the relationship feels a bit more real for sure. And there's so much about Vesper that you don't know. And you know that she's conflicted throughout. It kind of makes watching the movie a second time more interesting to be able to focus on her. Knowing where she ends up makes going back and rewatching it to see her decisions and when those occur much more interesting. Um, so, yeah, I I can't really add anything else except to say awesome. <laughs> well, what I love about the whole thing is the complexity of it, you know. What she's doing in this movie is because she's trying to save somebody she thought she loved. Um, we'll learn in the next movie something about that character, and it's it's not so good about him. But she loved this guy. She she thought she was doing this for him, and I don't think she ever expected to have any kind of feelings for Bond. And yet, I do think that that she does have true feelings for him. And as as M says at the very end. Why do you think you're still alive? She bargained for your life. She cares about Bond, and I think she may even love him in in a certain way as well. Um, you know, whether it's a full on romance is is different because it's very complicated with what's happening in the story. But what I love here is that it isn't just another romantic fling or or anything like that for Bond, as he has in the beginning of the movie with Demetrius's wife this means something to him and it affects him very personally um and I, I think it did a great job as on her majesty's secret service did which answered the question of why does bond never allow himself to go farther why does he always keep things quote-unquote professional with the ladies even though they're not doing anything professional um you know it's I think that's what's so interesting about the character is he does. He puts that armor back on to keep himself safe. And I think he's trying to keep them safe in some way uh, by keeping it, you know, so distant uh, and just casual. So I do love that about this movie. And I think you were right, Norm. The, the chemistry that these two have is is phenomenal. And it, it really is what makes a movie between two romantic leads quote unquote work that that's that's what we kind of fall for is the fact that the two people on screen seem like they could actually fall in love in real life that you know that's good acting so whether or not they hate each other or not you know uh notebook style mm. um you can go look up the stories <laughs> um but uh you know that's that's what we respond to is what we actually see on screen so i think there are those moments though in in every movie where you see the crucible happen. And for me, I think James Bond became James Bond when he realized he failed Vesper because 
he's supposed to be the good guy. He's supposed to be the person who can make it right by force of will or by force of his physicality or by exercising every single option that's in front of him. And I can't say enough about this one particular scene where Daniel Craig just, he stops the CPR, he can't save her, and he kind of pushes himself away. He doesn't fall backward. He pushes himself away. And they close in on him. And this is where Martin Campbell is brilliant. He, he gives you this quiet moment. He closes in on him. Not a word is spoken. And what's happening with Daniel Craig's face is just, it's, it's worth watching again and again and again because this is where his brain is processing how he is becoming James Bond right then and there. He said that, I failed. I don't know why I failed. Why, why did I fail her? Did I fail her? Does it matter? What's my mission? Am I going to get back on point? What do I have to do next? Is this about revenge? Is it not about revenge? Why didn't I see this coming? All of this, all of it, yeah. it's, it's just flying through his mind. And then I think that's where M's speech to him, saying that now you know that you are you, he has turned all of those switches off because he can't afford to go back there anymore and do the job that the British government has entrusted him to do. Because in order for me to do good from this point forward, I can no longer afford the distraction of romance and real emotion. You know, I don't think the world is ready for uh, a deeply emotionally haunted James Bond. That's not the character we go to these movies to see. But what is a really nice change of pace with this movie and with this actor, with Daniel Craig, is that we get to see things that still have consequence and I think that's what we started to lose in a lot of the movies that were just sort of done by formula, by rote. Well, it's James Bond, so there has to be a girl, and probably one of those girls is going to die. Um, but then it won't have any effect on him at all. And I'm not saying that... Um, I mean, I think what you're talking about here, Norman, putting up the armor is um, is what he does, and it's the coping mechanism to be, to be able to do what Bond does. Um, but what we're seeing is that's a result of consequence. That's a guy who mm-hmm. isn't letting it um, get to him the way that it might get to other people, more maybe more realistically or more commonly. Um, but the things that are happening are happening in the real world to him. Um, it's not just a cartoon anymore, because this was a real human being, and now he's got to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a real character. Yeah. You know, he, he has emotions, he has feelings, and, and all of these things affect him. And it's, it is interesting to, in a lot of ways, watch him shut parts of himself down as a person so that he can deal with the ramifications of what he does need to do um, and, and why he's doing it. And it's, it really is fantastic. And, you know, it's so interesting because, you know, when Bond strikes in this movie, he strikes hard. You know, the beginning of the movie <laughs> with the scene with he's, you know, they're doing the free running. He is busting through walls uh, to try and catch this guy. He blows up at embassy. What I love is that we talked a little bit about at the beginning, this is the post 9-11 Bond. And they make really good use of that. You know, uh, M says, I don't. They don't care what we do. The prime minister knows better than to ask me what we really do. They just care what we get photographed doing, which is so realistic in a world where everybody was having camera phones. Mm -hmm. Everybody could take a picture. Everything, I mean, the CTV cameras in in London alone are insane. 
uh, and in so many cities around the world now. So the, the world has changed. And I love what Paul Haggis said, one of the writers. He said, you know, Bond in the 60s with the Cold War, things were not going well for Britain. And this character makes sense. He, we live in a world of fear. It is driven by fear. We are not sure if we're going to make it to the next day with everything that's going on in the world. We want this kind of character out there. And we live in that world again after 9-11 uh, and and it's still relevant. We we don't just bring this up on shows because it makes a cool point. It's just I mean, look at the news today with all the things happening around us in our own country, for gosh sakes, at you know um, shootings all the time. I mean, it, it military installations now. I mean, geez. So uh, we live in a world where we want to think that somebody can take care of us that can take care of the problems we can't even see. And that's where Bond comes in. And um, I just love the relevancy of the character in that way to, again, show us, as they will in this film and then through to Skyfall, of why something like this is still relevant. I mean, the speech that M gives in in Skyfall, we'll talk about it. (laughs) I mean, if there's not a better speech for why we need human intelligence Mm -hmm. done intelligently Mm -hmm. i don't know i mean so that's where i think this movie you know fiction began began to transcend itself into reality um and they just do such a good job with that and again it's grounding this character making him necessary um and i think that that's a really good thing for them to do to say if we want bond to last another 50 years we need to show why that kind of character is still needed in the world today. And they do a beyond brilliant job of that. Yeah, it's good. Um, I I do always wonder that about Bond, simply because we do like to think in sort of the fantasy fulfillment version of this, that there's a good guy and there's a bad guy, and all that has to happen is that the good guy outthinks and outguns the bad guy. And then we're done. That's the end of that story. And we get to move on to the next story. And what they've been doing more recently with the Bond films is saying that all of these things are sort of connected. And even if you're done with one mission, it doesn't mean that you're totally done, that you get to stop and go home and kind of shake that off and then go to work and do something else the next day. Um I was very interested, and we'll talk about this again in a few weeks, that they reset The Man from Uncle back in the 60s. So here's a show that was on in the early 60s, and you'd set the new movie in the early 60s, because it is specifically Cold War period. And I thought, yeah, you know, could you even do that story now? Could you even place that story in 2015 and make it feel relevant at all? Now, their job is going to be to make a story that takes place 50 years ago feel relevant, <laughs> you know, because you still have to believe the characters. You still have to believe the, the, the action has consequence. But James Bond has figured it out, and they've done it in a really good way where, um, you know, you, you said it. This is the first post-9-11 Bond film, and one of the big key sequences is stopping a terrorist attack on a plane. Kind of terrifying, no matter what. Um, I was interested to see that, that, uh, what do they call it, a Skyfleet plane looked like an Airbus A380. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. <laughs> my, my favorite commercial jetliner at the moment. Um, but yeah, but they, they made it feel real and relevant and made you understand why a character like this, if he doesn't specifically exist today, there's a need for the kind of thing that that character represents, which is intelligence fighting for the good guy. But we know there's also intelligence fighting for the bad guy, too. <laughs> you know, much like Star Trek, in all of its various incarnations, does its job best when it parallels the allegory of the time. In the 1960s, you know, it was dealing with, say, a private little war was dealing with Vietnam and all the different ways that Star Trek focuses on social issues of that particular series period James Bond also does well and does it at its best when it's dealing with, I guess it would be the enemy incarnation of the time. Say the 1960s was the Cold War. The 1970s was a little bit more nebulous, but we were doing the space race, space war, i.e. Moonraker. You know, in the 1980s, it was kind of like went back to the, there is a little bit more of that Cold War threat, especially with uh, Khrushchev and the threats of the like 1980 to 1984. And then even kind of like it started to taper off a little bit with Pierce's because there wasn't, the, you know, the Cold War was over, the Berlin Wall was down. There wasn't really this threat. So we turned our threat inward and made a lot of his villains kind of these psychotic billionaire types. And then we ha- obviously had in Die Another Day, we had the Korean issue with the demilitarized zone and the Korean military. So the gamut has been run. But then 9-11 happened, and then everybody's clocks were reset. They kind of refocused on, what is this world to me now? What's my responsibility in it? And the media itself has a responsibility to make sure that that sensibility maintains its relevancy in the media. And I think that the writers, when they reset Bond, they made a conscious choice to make sure that it's represented in this narrative because... It's not just one enemy anymore. It is this network of enemies you cannot see. And when one, I mean, I know this is kind of like an allegory for Hydra, and it's not Hydra, but you take out one entity and another entity unlocks and starts the mission anew for the enemy side. So how do you combat that as James Bond? How do you become this one person that can put himself into harm's way against a threat that has so many different pathways. And I think that that is where these writers really were smart enough to build a foundation of Spectre in this very first movie without seeing Spectre or really not even feeling the far-reaching machinations of this organization, but now turning Spectre into something that was very Cold War-ish, i.e. this hybridation of Smirsh and the Russians, and turning into something that's going to be terrifyingly real and has to be so well balanced when Spectre comes out that it's not too hard-hitting to the audience to make them think, you know what? Yeah, the world really is this dangerous, and no matter how good our hero is, the danger is always there. So we need a hero of this magnitude. We need to believe in somebody who can make these decisions, who can put himself in danger, and who cares about being able to restore balance. But... Is Daniel Craig going to be able to maintain that in the next movie? I'm not sure. But the, just the, 
the phantom menace, to, if you will, is there. It's this unstoppable, nebulous, unidentifiable force that we need heroes to stand up against. Well, and that's that's one of the things I think that was so interesting is that M talks about it. She's trying to get her blunt instrument bond to think about, which is the bigger picture. Um, you know, he says, I, I thought one less bomb maker in the world would, would be a good thing. And she's like, one bomb maker? We're trying to co- bring down a whole organization, uh, figure out how it works. And that's what's so interesting about Le Chief is that as bad as he is, he is the cog in a big wheel. And as Qui-Gon says in the prequels, there's always a bigger fish. And when it comes to this kind of world that we live in, there always is another part of the organization, as you were saying, Norm. So I just think that is a really smart thing because, again, it's one of those deals where instead of like a Marvel movie where they're planting broad spectrum hey this is the big tag for the next movie (laughs) check it out you know no they were planting all the little seeds of things that they were thinking about picking up on later on so that as you watched this again with hopefully they were hoping with the next movie and and a next movie and maybe next movie that it would all kind of fit together loosely enough that it kind of created a series but at the same time stood alone and I love that they do that. Um, it, it fits so well, and there's some tiny little things in here that, that get picked up in Skyfall. Bond says that he knows M's name in this movie and that he thought M was just a randomly assigned letter and it didn't stand for, and then she makes him shut his mouth, which is fantastic. And she tells him, never break into my house again. And what does he do in Skyfall? He breaks into her house again. So um, I do I do love that. Um, and then not only that, but they do kind of set up in this movie that Bond and M have a much closer relationship than we've ever thought possible. Um, and they pay that off again later on in the series. So just some really great work that they're doing here with the writing. And I think that that's what left me feeling... The bond. I felt bonded here with with <laughs> this film, that it felt like a Bond movie. Um, it felt classic in the sense that, yes, it was a new Bond, but they had kept the same M. And uh, so, yes, it doesn't make any sense to have Dame Judi Dench in this film. But as Michael Wilson said, it's Dame Judi Dench. You keep her in the series if you can. There's no reason that you don't have her in the movie. Um you know, the music here, it feels like one of the classic Bond. The score is fantastic um, here by David Arnold, and he's done lots of Bond movies, but I felt like this one, like you said, John, it's, it was using the theme that they created at the beginning of the movie and actually or- doing orchestral work with that to make it fit. And then the stunts and the production here are just hands down mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's really visceral. Um, I, I freak out every time Gizmodo publishes a video of uh, Russian teenagers jumping on, you know, tall buildings and uh, running around construction sites 800 feet in the air. I get really queasy, and I got it again rewatching the opening of Casino <laughs> Royale with uh, the parkour chase. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it just feels absolutely real. It feels like there is consequence to everything happening. Um, 
uh, you mentioned the score. I'll also mention the cinematography because uh, it's gorgeous to look at. You know, I'm a big fan of what we got in Skyfall, and I had kind of forgotten how beautiful Casino Royale looks because I was so blown away by Skyfall. Um, it's directed very well because, again, they let the camera linger when they could. They let the quiet scenes speak instead of with dialogue. Um, it, Yeah, it, it felt right. The pacing, even for, what, a two-hour and 20-minute long movie, the pacing felt just right. It kept my attention from scene to scene. Um, and the the action scenes weren't done in a way that felt contrived. The action scenes felt earned. Um, and it didn't feel like other movies where I feel like you can sort of uh, set your watch and say, oh, well, we had an emotional scene. We had something with a little chuckle. So now it's time for somebody to get shot or beat up. <laughs> <You know? laughs> this, can somebody yeah. get their face burned off yeah, now? Right. <laughs> I have to go get some popcorn. I'll be right back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so this doesn't feel like that at all. It feels like all the beats are really earned. Um, and all of these, everything that we've discussed about why we like this movie so much and what works, all of these are very hard to do because we've seen Bond movies that are less successful at this and we've seen just a lot of action movies come out that are not successful at this. And I always feel like it's a blow-off when people say about an action movie, oh, well, it's just sort of a big, dumb action movie. What did you expect? Well, I know that big, smart action movies exist, and I know that big, smart action movies with great characters exist because Bond does it and has been doing it. And that's why I'm always glad to see a Bond movie come out and show everybody else how it's supposed to be done. <laughs> and this is what Casino Royale did. Not only did it show others how it's supposed to be done, it showed James Bond how it's supposed to be done again mm -hmm. in one of those many cyclical kind of reboots that we get. You know, one of the things I really appreciated about this particular movie is that you actually got to see the consequences of the fights. Mm -hmm. You got to see, um, you know, James Bond bloodied. His knuckles bloodied or his clothes were rent or all of the different situations where he basically had to clean himself up in order to reestablish his position into the next scene. I thought that was brilliant. I mean... We've seen time and time again where Bond is in a fight. Maybe a hair is misplaced, maybe a bead of sweat. But that was the fantasy of Bond. Bond could do this. He could walk into a kung fu fight wearing a Tom Ford suit and not have a single stitch out of place at the end of it and then just straighten up his tie and say something very pithy. Mm -hmm. That is the fantasy of Bond. I think it was a very smart choice to show that Bond indeed was human, and could bleed and think on his feet on how is he going to get himself recomposed to get back on point and on mission because there was the scene where he had to fight the two Ugandan assailants in the hallway and he got the snot beat out of him he was cut yeah. he was bruised he fell down a flight of stairs and then all of a sudden next day he had to heal up in order to get back into the mentality of poker, and then finally get his bearings back to basically go to the mission at hand. We never really get to see those moments. Those are the moments, the, 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 the ticks in between the seconds, you know, the, uh, the beats in between the major heartbeats. Those are the moments that I always thought were really neat because I love behind-the-scenes moments. And now 
we got to see James Bond actually become a person with consequence. And, oh my gosh, I got to get back to the table in half an hour, but I'm poisoned. What do I do? Go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Le Chiffre has that great line of, you've changed your shirt. (laughs) I know. And and that's the thing. Like, I, I don't want to ever lose the idea that Bond is a guy who can recover and still be the coolest guy in the room after he's just either beaten somebody up or gotten himself beat up. Um, but we got that glimpse behind the scenes to show that, okay, th- this is still real and it still has consequence, as you said. That's important. We we had seven James Bond movies with Roger Moore where we never saw him get beat up. And certainly not to the extent that we would see a Daniel Craig get beat up. Um mm. And I'm not saying that that's a right or a wrong choice for those movies. Those movies are made in the style that they were made. And right. some of them were successful than others in that respect. Um, but for this kind of Bond, you have to at least have that scene once where Bond cleans himself up. Because you have to know that that happens. And mm-hmm. they, they played mm-hmm. it expertly here. Yeah, And how, I mean, I love the fact that when he was cleaning the blood off of a scar, and then he takes that giant, mm-hmm. you know, that giant slug of scotch to calm his nerves yeah. because he actually has nerves that need to be calm. Right. I thought that was a nice, very quiet moment of, okay, this is how he recomposes himself. This is his routine. He's done it a million times, but we never had the chance to see any of those times. And now we got to see it once. That's all we need. Mm-hmm. Because it informs us that this is his thing. This is what he does to get ready. I thought it was brilliant. I love that this movie has that feeling of reality in in everything that happens. And I'm not somebody who has to have a a movie not have tons of CGI and that kind of thing. If it's called for, you know, space adventures, yes. Fantasy movies, yes. You can put as much CGI in there as possible. But one of the things that have always stood apart Bond movie-wise is the fact that they would do their stunts for real. And that was one of the things that was so frustrating about uh, Die Another Day is that so much of it was done with CGI. And you could tell it was done with CGI because it was very badly done. This movie, everything feels real. There are guys up on those wires 200 feet doing those jumps. Craig is doing as much of it as he can. They flip a real Aston Martin, which what I learned from the extras is it's almost impossible to do to flip an Aston Martin unless you shoot a cannon out of the bottom and make it flip Mm -hmm. Uh, because it's just made to not flip. So um, they work so hard to get things to look like they happened because they actually happened. And that's what's so amazing about this movie is that you feel connected with everything that's going on because this is supposed to be a grounded bond and you're supposed to feel like I could be watching this scene happen in reality. And, and um, what was great is that they did happen in the reality. That's what was so nice about it. And um, I, I love that that's the production of these bond films. And um, there's, I, I really can't think of anything in Casino Royale that I don't like, which is pretty impressive. Um, you know, I, I, I'm i hard-pressed to find anything in this film that I'm like, eh, that was just okay. 
maybe a little bit more explanation of some of the inner workings of what's going on. Whatever. There's too much good here for me to care about anything that I might, like, have to give a little bit more thought to later on. It just, it's giving me everything I need first, second, third, fourth, twentieth time I watched this movie. (laughs) The, the The thing that this movie is missing is that there's not enough uh, Valenka, played by Ivana Milicevic, uh, that was um, the Schieffer's girlfriend, mm-hmm. uh, because there was not oh, enough yeah, screen yeah. time given to a beautiful, blonde, <laughs> Eastern European woman in this movie. Mm-hmm. So uh, hopefully if she gets her own spinoff movie, maybe I could produce it. Um, I'll let you guys know if I come up with a script. Okay. Okay. Okay, I'm looking Great. forward to it, man. Yeah. We've got that. We've got it here on the 602 yeah. Club. A 602 Club yep. first. <laughs> well, she can be part of the ladies, uh, the women of Bond retrospective. Absolutely. Yes. There we go. You know? yeah. There we go. Yeah. Um, one of the things, uh, just because I don't see it listed in the notes, Matthew is, and I, I would, we would all be remiss not to mention that is how fantastic Mads Mikkelsen was in this movie as Le Chief. Mm-hmm. Because, in my opinion, he really brought the quiet intelligence of a villain who we all know wasn't the villain because throughout the course of the context, we know that there's a greater overarching network of, of what will eventually become the story inspector, I hope. But we saw where the introduction of Bond into combating this organization begins, and that's with Le Chiffre. And I thought that Mads Mikkelsen was... A very, incre- just a really intelligent, interesting counterpart, almost a mirror image to what Bond was doing, especially when he was across the poker table. They were just absolutely masterful at selling the poker and chess and Baccarat mentality between these two characters. And I can't see anyone else really filling that role the way he did. Because there were times where he just had this incredible arrogance that worked. And there were times when his bluff was called and he knew that his world was about to crumble right on his head right at that moment. And then the desperation torture scene and the rusted out warehouse and then the the knotted rope torture device. I mean, he played that brilliantly, brilliantly. I don't think he gets enough credit in the pantheon of Bond villains. Hey, uh, when we cut to Bond recovering at that beautiful villa, why was he seated? Uh, that's what I wanted. And he's probably sitting on a donut. Um, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. What I love is that that's the exact same place that Anakin and Padme have their scene. Uh, no way. Uh, there in Naboo. Uh, it is the very, ex- very it's the same place there in, uh, uh, Italy, mm-hmm. um, on that famous lake that uh, lake Cuomo. You know, Clooney lives on, Lake Como. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I love that, that that's the exact same place where Anakin's talking about how he doesn't like sand. Um, <laughs> so it's 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 hilarious Not only that, that, but they're at the same spot. He recovers pretty quickly because he and Vesper, as they pledged their feelings toward each other, you know, they throw that, uh, they throw that sanitarium door open pretty fervently and jump yep. right on that operating table and... Do what Bond does best. So nice. Yeah. As the spirit moves him. You know, I, I think you're right though. This is a this is a great villain and it's a great Bond movie. Um and it's a great character movie. And what I love is that for the first time 
a Bond movie was overshadowed by Bond, not by the villain. Yeah. Because we were actually caring about the character. So I wanted to ask you guys, uh, I think this is going to be a pretty easy question for us all, but what would you rate Casino Royale? Um, and let's we'll do out of five. We'll, we'll kind of give our ratings for this, this series here with the Craig series as we're moving forward. Um, yeah, John? I give it uh, four and a half out of five Valencas. <laughs> You would have given it five if there was more If there Valenka. was more Valenka. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, here's the thing. The only reason that I hesitate, and, and it's kind of not fair, because you, you should only rank a movie against itself, you know? But I, I really think that this belongs with Skyfall, because Skyfall finishes telling the story of the character. Um, and it tells it in a really unique way. So uh, I, I think I put those two together and I give them uh, five out of five wrecked Aston Martins. Um, mm. But for this one by itself, I give it four and a half out of five Valencas. You know, John, you bring up a really good point because um, Skyfall really is kind of like the spiritual successor. It is the true bookend to Casino Royale. And Quantum being in the middle of it, it kind of like does what the Two Towers does for Lord of the Rings. But Fellowship and Return of the King really kind of are the thrust of Frodo's story. And... Casino Royale and Skyfall really are the thrust of the the building up and tearing down and rebuilding. And finally, be, through the crucible of all of that, we have James Bond at the end. We have the padded door. We have the flirtation with Money Penny. We have tossing the hat on the hook. We have mm-hmm. everything that leads all the way up to his very first true dossier mission, possibly Dr. No, we don't know. And yes, that would have been the most amazing, say, three and a half hours, maybe four hour film ever made in the history of the Bond franchise. But you're right, you do have to grade the film on its own merit. And for me, not only was this a great James Bond film, but it was a great action film that stands on its own. You could take all of the James Bond trappings out of it and still have a great film. Yeah, It's just the touchstones of the DB5, of the shaken, not stirred, of the smoking jacket, of the gadgetry that make it more James Bond because it, it touches on those those moments that fans love. But for me, I think I would probably have to rate this 4.75 Vespers out of five. Oh, good. Um, we didn't mention, but the just uber brilliant and, I mean, a car that I would love to have, the uh, DBS. Mm-hmm. I mean, that Aston Martin is just incredibly beautiful in this film. And they do a marvelous job of wrecking it. Um, so... I'm with you guys. I I love this Bond movie. It's a fantastic Bond movie. It's a fantastic movie. Forget Bond. Mm -hmm. This is just a good movie. Um, It's just accentuated, I think, by the fact that it is a Bond movie. And it's spectacular. So, I I rate this uh, four and a half out of five as well, John. And uh, four and a half out of five DB5s. um, That... That half DV5 is just really strange, though, sitting in my yard. Um, it's the ejector so. seat. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, the ejector seat is is really wonky on that one. But yeah, this is, I mean, this is the creme de la creme of Bond films, really. I mean, it's uh, it's in my top five. That's how good it is of, of, you know, 23 Bond films right now as we're moving to 24. This is... This is in the top five. That tells you how good I think this movie is. And so, uh, again, being number 20 in its lineage, that's impressive 
that it gets up there, you know. Uh, before we kind of uh, tell everybody where you can find us and all that, anything that we missed that you just have to say about the movie, guys? No, I mean, I, I think it's just the rare thing that you can be 20 movies into a franchise and and countless additional stories kind of surrounding that franchise that you can be that successful reinventing restoring and justifying character uh, in a way that has huge payoff to the fans who have been there for 20 movies and books and etc etc but also create a movie that is entertaining and exciting and um, moving to people who are not that invested in James Bond already. Um, I think I read somewhere that a third of the population of the Earth have seen a James Bond movie. And I wonder if some of those just sort of didn't stand up that well. You know, somebody caught whatever. Somebody caught Moonraker, hated it, never decided to see another Bond movie again. But I think this is one of those that for people who weren't raised on it like we were that they can come to it totally fresh, not knowing the mythology, and still really get something out of it. Because it works for action, it works for character, it works for character relationship, and it leaves you with some really intriguing questions about who this guy is. And it leaves you wanting to see more of what he can do. So it's such a success on all of those levels, but then for everybody who has been a fan for so long, uh, there's just so much good stuff to see there. And, and I think that you summed it up brilliantly to say it's the first time that the Bond character is really front and center. Can't believe it took 20 movies to do that. But they, <laughs> but they did <laughs> no it, and kidding. they did it right. <laughs> now, the first, before I do my closing, the, I'm probably going to be the voice of of controversy here when it comes to the opening theme song. I loved the opening theme song. Mm. I really did. I'm a Chris Cornell. I'm a Soundgarden fan, a Chris mm-hmm. Cornell fan. Um, Carol, my girlfriend Carol, who I've mentioned before, the, she knew who exactly who it was of the very first lyric. She goes, oh my God, it's Chris Cornell. <laughs> but I loved it more than just his performance. I loved the opening credit sequence because I'm a big fan of texture and I love anachronism when I see certain things played well on screen and as modern as this James Bond was, the credit sequence was so very entrenched in a 1960s design aesthetic. Yeah. And the way that they did the animation with the silhouetted characters and the poker theme and all that time, you're hearing this one lyric repeated over and over and over again. You know my name. <laughs> you, know, you know who I am. I don't have to because of everything that has been built up and... The, the foresight of the producers bringing Bond back on this type of bombastic scale with the marketing that's been behind it and the controversy with Craig's casting and everything that is associated with merchandising and marketing, you don't have to say anything more than that. You know my name. You know who this movie is going to be about. And that flavor of going all the way back to the design and the cover of Fleming's original Casino Royale and bringing that into the design theme for this credit sequence was absolutely a masterstroke. And I loved every single moment of that because that helped me reimmerse myself in the context of this character when he was born. He was born in the 60s, but now, because of that opening sequence, 
with the fight scene, now you know that it's a modern Bond. So you have this really great instant juxtaposition of not just time, but of texture as well. So I loved that about that film. And there's not really more than I can add to the discussion or to our listeners than just this. This is how you restart a franchise. Mm -hmm. And the only other franchise Mm -hmm. that I've seen as successful in terms of its attempt so far to restart a franchise, if you've ever seen the preview for Creed that's coming up, it's the restart of, they're, they're trying to attempt to bring, basically bring back the Rocky franchise through Apollo Creed. It's, it's about taking the character and taking the spirit of it and repackaging it in such a way where it means something again to somebody. And as Bond fans, for, for a lot of us who are traditionally long-term Bond fans, this was the movie that I think we were waiting for that we didn't quite get, in my opinion, with Pierce Brosnan's movies. Now, I'm not saying that GoldenEye wasn't a great movie. It was. But I think that we were waiting for Casino Royale in GoldenEye. But we got it in Casino Royale. And that's what I love about Casino Royale because you're right, Matthew, it's not just a great Bond movie. It's a great movie. And that is needed. It, it's, it has stripped away the tropes and the for lack of a better word, the laziness of presenting James Bond to the public. They really worked hard at trying to bring back the true narrative of this character into a modern world, and will he mean something again? That was the challenge. And I think that the writers and the actors and everyone who was associated with the film really took that into consideration because I really do think they had one shot, a million-dollar shot, to really get it right in the eyes of the fans because at this stage in the game, if it didn't work, the social media demonization of the Bond franchise would have taken hold and I don't think that would have recovered if this movie wasn't as good as it really, really was. Uh, yeah. Here, here. I mean, uh, here, here, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm so glad we got to talk about Casino Royale um, and... Uh, before we do go, I, I do want to remind everybody we we're talking about the beginning. Uh, you know, you can check out all of the other shows that we have here at Trek FM, which I'm so excited for you to do. Um, you know, whether it's the series you're into, whether it's the books and comics, whether it's uh, different perspectives, anything that you'd like to listen to here on Trek FM, you can find. And of course, we do a billion different things here on the 602 club not just one thing which is what i love about doing the show and you can find us everywhere um you can find us on apple uh stitcher TuneIn, spreaker soundcloud windows phone and of course you can find the mp3 file on the website and you can also grab the rss link and put that in the any podcatcher you'd like and be able to listen to us anywhere anytime um on apple do a couple of things just hit that subscribe button helps us out greatly uh, really makes it easier for people to find the shows as they search in iTunes, as do star ratings and reviews. And I wanted to give a huge thanks to Elaine A423 for her wonderful five-star review and kind words about the show. Uh, it really means a lot for to me when you guys do that. Um, leave your feedback about the show on there and give us that five-star review. It, it means the world. Uh, and as John Mills would have me say, this is a five-star podcast. I mean, we're not going <laughs> to lie. Uh, and I'm not lying. Yeah, on iTunes right now, all reviews, uh, all-star writings, five stars. So I really appreciate it. It means the world to me. Norm, I was going to ask you to everybody, uh, just tell everybody about Patreon uh, before we leave because that's how we met. That's right. It was through Patreon mm-hmm. and you became a, a sponsor of the 
network. Mm -hmm. And then we became friends because you were on the 602 Club for your very first podcast. That's right. That's right. It was through patreon.com slash trekfm. One of the things that I loved about being able to associate myself with that service is that it allowed me to pretty much support what I as a fan love the most, and that's being able to perpetuate the tools of my fandom. And all of the shows on Trek FM have brought me so much just inspiration and joy, and it has afforded me the opportunity to meet so many great people like you, Matthew, and, and finally you, John, even though you and I were talking before when, um, you know, when, during Mission Log. But that's what this fandom is all about, is being able to reach out and connect and to meet like minds and meet all different types of perspectives and, and helping us here at Trek FM through donating through patreon.com is just one of those ways of doing that because you directly help support that which gives you all of this fantastic content and coverage and it may even give you the opportunity to do what I have done and to come online and to help through podcasting or just help inspire the hosts talk about all these different types of subjects. Well, and, and as uh, we're doing right now with Will these days, we're doing the roundtables. You could be a part of that, which is so much fun, getting together with a lot of the different people from the Babel Conference mm -hmm. that are supporting us on Patreon and just talking Star Trek, which is just so fantastic at the opportunity to do. So you can check everything out at patreon.com. Um, I'd like to thank Ken Tripp, who's been with me for a very long time. Uh, this guy is just fantastic. We were just talking the other day, in fact, uh, messaging back and forth on Facebook, and I really appreciate his support for so long here on the show. Um, and he does that through Patreon, and that makes him my associate producer, and he gets the shows early. He gets exclusive content, too, that nobody else does. Um, a few weeks ago, uh, we had a very funny moment that I cut out of the show, uh, but he got it because... Um, well, yeah, it was just special, and it needed to go to Ken. So um, I really appreciate his help with us there. Um, make sure you check us out. You can contact us at trek.fm slash contact. We'd love to hear from you about the show, what you think about the Bond movies, what some of your favorite Bond movies are. Leave us a voicemail. Sidebar on the show page, any page on Trek FM, or go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. Of course, we're on Twitter, as we said, at TrekFM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. And then we have our listeners-only discussion group called the Babel Conference. It's only for the listeners of the show. We don't put this anywhere else but here. So you can join by typing Babel into the search field on Facebook, or you can go to the website at Trek.FM and click Discussion on the menu bar. Now, guys, uh, you know, I have to say that it's a privilege getting to talk with both of you, um, and I'm glad that we're going to be doing this together, walking through the Bond films. But, um, John, tell everybody about where they can find you online, and of course, uh, I know many listeners may know, but not all may know, about your podcast that you do with Ken Ray, uh, Mission Log for Roddenberry.com. Um, tell everybody about those Sure, things. yeah, that's the best place to find me on uh, Facebook and Twitter. Mission Log Pod is the address. And our website is missionlogpodcast.com. Uh, it's produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Um, Rod Roddenberry was kind enough to get in touch with me and Ken and say, hey, do a podcast. Go talk about Star Trek. So Ken and I did that. <laughs> and... Um, Okay, sure. if you're going to twist our arm about so, it. So we're coming up on our third anniversary. We started in August of 2012 with The Cage. 
We've gone through the original series episode by episode. We've gone through the animated series episode by episode, the first six movies, and we're now in the third season of The Next Generation, going episode by episode, talking about the the ideas, the philosophy, the morals. You know, it's so interesting. I, I get email from people. I get comments on Facebook, Twitter, and everything, and um, it's really uh, it's really touching that people are still so engaged to steal a phrase um, to talk about Star Trek. <laughs> it fits. It fits well. It does. It does. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if we if we go with the premise that Star Trek's an important show and it has important things to say, then sure, let's look into that. Let's see what happens when we start peeling back those layers. Awesome. And of course, you can find uh, Mission Log on Trek FM. Sure as can. Well. I, I love that we are kind of a part of that family. It's been really awesome for us. Well, Norm, uh, it's been great having you as part of the family as well. And uh, tell everybody about where they find you online and, of course, on the network with your own podcast. Mm-hmm. Well, you can find me here on Trek FM on Warp 5, where I co-host the show with Will Wynn, who is also our content manager for Trek FM. And he runs that fantastic show every month called The Roundtable. So check into that. Um, I can also be found on the Babel Conference. I post there pretty much every day, as I do on the Axonar fan group page on Facebook, where I'm a huge supporter of Alec Peters and his work there on the Axonar project, the independent film, and you'll, you can find out more about that on the Axonar page there. And you can find me on Twitter. That's Norman Lau. That's N-O-R-M-A-N-L-A-O. And yes, that's... And also, I keep forgetting to say this, I'm also an executive producer here at Trek FM, and I love being here on this show. I love the 602. You're right, Matthew. It was the very first show that I was able to broadcast a full show for Trek FM with you because I started off as an associate producer through Patreon. And I, as much as I don't get a chance to do it as, as much as I would like, I always appreciate being on this show so that, so that we can talk about all the things that we like talking about outside of Star Trek because there's so much... And I love James Bond so much, and I just thank you for giving me the opportunity. And I always love being on with John because he is my 60s soulmate. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I can't We're wait. We're going to be doing a lot of great things yeah. together. I can't yeah. wait to yeah. cover Uncle with you uh. and the rest of the Bond films because because we're going to be going back all the way to that, that, that classic time with classic content and stuff that we probably haven't talked to the listeners about at all. So I think the listeners are going to be in a treat where we do a little bit of a time twist here and go back to uh, mm. the days of Go-Go Boots and Art Deco. That'll be, uh, that'll be a no. five-hour pay-per-view event. So go ahead <laughs> yeah. and uh, sign up for that now. I'm down. I'm down. What I love is that, as the song says, and, and as we were, I think we felt about uh, Casino Royale with Bond. We're just reunited, and it, <laughs> it feels so good. So Well played, um, We've got well, all you guys. The time <laughs> <laughs> oh, before we start singing, you can find me at MattRushing02 on Twitter. You can find me on Instagram at MRushing. You can find me doing the orb with Christopher Jones, talking exclusively about the best Star Trek series, Deep Space Nine. John, you haven't gotten no. There yet? You haven't heard of no, that. No, I have no yet. idea what you're talking about. Um, but there's more Star Trek in the future. There will, yeah, there will be a show after the or as the next generation is kind of shifting out. 
there will be a new show called Think Okay, Geek Future Boy. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. I didn't mean to ruin it for you. Uh, you can find me doing Literary Treks with Dan, where we talk about the books and the comics of Star Trek. We interview the authors. Um, really enjoy doing that show. If you enjoy Star Trek, especially the Prime Universe, uh, and you want new stories with those characters, man, Literary Treks and the books and the comics is the way to go. And you can also find me on my own personal blog at 42alifeinbetween.wordpress.com. I just want to thank you so much for joining us. It means so much to me that you would spend your time with us. And y'all come back now, you hear? 